Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. Um, I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And we are sitting here with Senator Michael Bennett. We're so excited to have you here with us today, Senator. We appreciate you being here. Um, You know, Action 22 really judges our legislators on the ones who show not just by word, but also by deed, that they're interested in taking care of and representing and serving our constituents. And so right now, um, we have certainly felt the love from you, taking care of all of us, looking out for us, asking questions what we need, um, and taking what you've learned, especially in the last year, taking what you've learned from us and and being able to apply it back in D.C., um, we know it, we love it, and we appreciate it so much. Well, I'm I'm just grateful to be here in your studio for this <laughs> conversation. And uh, it's, uh, you know, COVID, this has been a tough, tough time. And I tell people, you know, the elected leaders, local elected leaders, nobody runs for county commissioner or for mayor because they think they're going to be dealing with this. And oh, yeah. my job is to support them, you know, and to support uh, obviously all of our constituents across the state whether it's fire or flood or COVID. And for me, you know, I, I've, I've actually been to every one of our 64 counties in Colorado during COVID from February to February to try to hear what people need, you know, from yeah. uh, farmers and ranchers to small business owners. I was just meeting up in the Springs with a group of classroom teachers who are having a really tough time because they're, you know, they're sort of half back and half not back. And, some of it's virtual and some of it's in, you know, and everybody's so worried that the kids have fallen behind. So we've got a lot to do. We have a lot, a lot to do. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that you actually have been working on. Um, so let's start with the American Rescue Plan. Um, there's a couple of portions of that that are, you've worked particularly yeah. hard on. So talk about a little bit the child tax credit. So this is something, what I, as I've traveled Colorado, Obviously, you hear lots of things in different places. But if I, if somebody said to me, Michael, summarize the last 10 years of town halls, I would say that's really easy to do. It's people coming and saying, we're working really hard, but we can't afford some combination of housing, health care, higher education, or early childhood education, or child care. We can't save. We feel like, you know, we feel like we're already living a life that's more diminished than the ones our parents lived, and we're worried about what's going to happen to our kids. So I wrote this bill to, to, to reform the child tax credit. The result of it's gonna be a very large tax cut for working people across the country. Uh, it is, um, uh, it's gonna cut childhood poverty in this country in half this year, almost in half. How's it gonna do that? It, by take the, the existing child tax credit today is $2,000 a kid. This takes it up to $3,000 a kid and it's fully refundable. And what that means is the poorest people are going to be able to get it. Today in Colorado, there are 350,000 children, a lot of them rural, who don't get the benefit of the tax credit because their their parents don't make enough. Well, yeah. we've learned a lot in the last decades that we've made it awfully hard. You know, it's hard. 
we made it really tough to be poor in this country. So, and it's tough to, it, for, you know, we've made it hard for people to hold on to jobs because if they need childcare, they can't afford it. If the car breaks down, they can't get back to work. And what this says is, look, we're going to, we're, America's going to invest in our children. We're not going to accept the fact that we've got one of the highest, which we do, highest child poverty rates in all the industrialized countries in the world. So this cuts it almost in half by doing that. Okay. Additionally, um, we're working with the Treasury to, to try to make sure that it's paid out on a monthly basis so it won't be annual anymore, which means that people are going to be able to predictably cash flow their kids and grandkids. So this is, you know, Washington spent a lot of time over the years cutting taxes for the richest people in the country. We haven't cut taxes for working people in a really long time. 90% of the kids in Colorado are going to benefit from this. And so that's a big step forward. And that was in the American Rescue Plan. All right. So Health Force, tell me about yeah. Health Force. That's so interesting. That came, that idea came to me because uh, I was traveling mostly in rural Colorado and people were saying, we don't have the capacity to do vaccinations. We don't have people, we don't have people trained to do um uh, the testing and the tracing and the con, you know, the contact tracing and, and Colorado, actually our, our public health infrastructure, some estimates say was underfunded by 40%. That was before COVID. Now they're totally stretched. And, um, and so I went back and wrote a bill to create something called the, the health, the health force. And Joe Biden included that in, in the American rescue plan. What that's going to mean is, um, we're going to spend $7 billion uh, to hire 100,000 people across the country to support the local health infrastructure. So it is not a program from Washington, D.C. It is a program to give resources to people, public health folks across our state who are now going to have people that they're going to be able to send out to do the vaccines and everything else. Why is that important? Because our economy is only going to be able to reopen and stay open if we get this virus behind us. And, and, and my view, I've said all along, we can either manage the virus or let the man, the virus manage us. I'd much rather have us manage the virus. And that's what this is an attempt to do. All right. Summer programs for kids. So this was, I used to be a school superintendent, as you guys probably know. So I've spent a lot of time talking to teacher, as I mentioned, earlier, you know, just today I was with some teachers, kids, parents, and a lot of our kids have fallen behind this year and they need help in the summertime to get them caught up. And so the, there's about a $1.2 billion in this package for summer programs. And they're, they're distinct. You know, the school districts are already getting a fair amount of money from the package. What I did was carve off just a little bit of that, that $1 billion for programs that are not school district programs. Having been a school superintendent, I know there are gonna be places where it would be better to have some local you know, nonprofit or somebody like that delivering the programming or sports you know, group or something like that. So that's what this money is for. And it's to give our kids a chance you know, to have a, a normal summer after yeah. they've had a, just a brutal school year. I don't know if you guys have kids, my youngest one, Four. I've got three. My youngest is 16. And, you know, this has not been easy for anybody. So my husband's a teacher um, and we have identical twin boys who are 14. 14. Um, and it's been 
Um, I can say genuinely it's been hard on the boys, but it's been far, far harder on my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, this last year, it's been far, far harder on the teachers. Yeah. Um, and he's seriously looking at early retirement or getting out at this what, point. What does he teach? He teaches science. Yeah. He teaches biology high school. I'm really worried about it. I'm really worried about it. You know, before before COVID even happened, I was in Jackson County and I started off the conversation, which is where Walden is up in mm-hmm. northern Colorado. I, I started the conversation by apologizing for how badly I had done in the last election in Jackson County. And <laughs> that's how Republican a place it is. And somebody said, oh, no, Senator, you you did. You won more votes than than you should have won. And, and somebody else somebody else said it was the school people. But, you know, they were telling me they've got one school up there. They're saying we can't hire teachers. Yeah. And, I, and I said, why can't you? And he said, because we're paying thirty one thousand dollars for a starting salary here. In Wyoming, they get $42,000 to start. And that was before COVID. Now there are people that just had this brutal time. And, you know, I've heard I've heard people say, oh, the teachers are being lazy. They just want to stay home. It's not true. You know, they're killing themselves. And nobody would have asked for this set of circumstances. Not only are they killing themselves, but they're beating themselves up as well. That's true. They're just... They just feel like they've done such a bad job. They can't, and everything switches and every, there's no way to connect. And, and especially in these small schools where everybody, these rural schools where everybody really knows everybody else, it's particularly hard um, to see, you know, kids slip through the cracks, kids drop out, kids not showing up online. It's been, it's been really tough. So I hope those summer programs can really help connect teachers and kids and get that back to where that needs to be. Um, Also, I just wanted to ask too, I know earmarks are kind of the talk of the town right now. (laughs) And um, we've had um, various members just ask, you know, is there going to be a process? I know the Senate's still looking at how to go about it. Um, But we have a lot of interest in rural Colorado to get some of these funds like the the Fox Theater in uh, Trinidad. Um, Commissioner Ortiz has a project here that He's curious about is the do you fo- see that going yeah, through? first of all, the Fox Theater in Trinidad, that would be an amazing project. That yeah, would be incredible. I that just walked by there a few months ago. That would be amazing. And you know, in something like the Arkansas Valley Conduit that yes. I've been working on for with Corey Gardner and Mark Udall actually, even yeah. before that, and now John Hickenlooper, that's something that could really benefit if we brought back earmarks or congressionally directed funding or whatever the word is. The Senate hasn't decided how to do it yet, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I'm f- going to be fine with it as long as it's completely transparent and yes. everybody knows what my process is. I, I don't have a process yet, but so that people, so that it's a fair, it's fair all across the state and, uh, and, um, and, and that it's transparent when we actually get the earmarks so people know what we've asked for and 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 what what we've given so the public can evaluate whether they think that it's a good idea or not i appreciate that That's... um i think that i think that ought to work and and it is true that there are things like the arkansas valley condo it's actually a very good example mm-hmm. that that it was it's been harder to get done what we need to get done there because there hasn't been a um kind of an earmark process. Yeah, I, I remember every year fighting for that, writing letters right, you know, right. constantly. So. so I'm curious, and a lot of earmarks kind of get a, in the more conservative camps, uh, earmarks get a bad rep. 
Can you explain a little bit why that you're even considering it or what's, what's the deal? What's it, what do people not understand? I think, about there, I think there are a couple of things. One is there is a feeling that sometimes um, members of Congress know their states better than bureaucrats in Washington, DC. And I think that's almost always true. Mm -hmm. And that having a small, very, very small portion of the budget be placed in somewhere where Congress can direct it um, would mean that things like the Fox Theater in Trinidad, you know, which nobody in Washington is going to know anything about, yeah, um, could actually get some attention. So that's one of it. Second, um, there is the feeling among some that this might actually help us begin to get people to work together again back yeah. in Washington. I don't know whether that's actually true or not, but I, at this point I would try almost anything yeah. to try to get folks to. So you'll remember uh, the, the abuse of earmarks yes. and we're just gonna have to, that was really caused by a lack of transparency. Yes. And that's important that they put that in. And yeah. when I read that, I was like, I wish this would have been how it used to be. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. So, so we'll see, we'll okay. see. I think there's a, I think there's interest in trying to give it a try and see if it works. How far out are they on making those rules? I think it's the next, I mean, I think we're probably going to figure this out in the next month or two. Um, the appropriators are the ones that are really in the middle of it. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. Um, we have uh, one of our members, Roxy Piganelli, who's been um, talking with your staff, but she had a big question about um, the way education is funding and you're using the Title I model. Um, and her question was, is there any way to, to put that back, basically sort of like the earmark question back in your hands so that you understand a little bit better what needs to happen in Colorado, especially on the education funding part, than somebody in DC who's just um, putting that into a model that already exists that's not really um, true to form here in Colorado. Yeah. So I, I, when I was the superintendent of Denver Public Schools, I spent a lot of time wondering why everybody in Washington was so mean to our kids and to our teachers. Mm -hmm. And when I went back there, I realized they're not actually mean. Some of them are very mean, but they're not mean <laughs> right. to our kids and our teachers. They just have absolutely no idea what's going right. on in our schools and our classrooms. I am a big believer in flexibility of, of, of um, allowing decision-making to be made at the local level. I don't think Washington should be the national school board. I do think when it comes to Title I, you know, we have been, um, as a nation, this is not Colorado specific, as a nation, we have never actually gotten the money to the poorest kids because it's based on a formula that has to do with average teacher salary instead of right. actual teacher salary. And that's something I've actually been fighting to change. And we've got in the last Elementary and Secondary School Act bill, we got um, a study put in there to at least determine whether we're complying with the original intent of the law. And that's just that one piece on Title I. I do think, you know, if people, if there are educators listening or others listening who have thought of good ways of um, creating more flexibility, you know, I'm all ears and you should let me know. Perfect, perfect. Um, if you have enough time, can we talk about some of the infrastructure investment sure, stuff? Sure. Okay. Outdoor Restoration Partnership Act. So this is really exciting to me. That is all of everybody. Everybody knows we had our worst fire season ever. We had three of the worst fires that we have ever had. Um, that's a result of climate and it's a result of the federal government 
not investing in our national forests, not taking care of our national forests. For 11 years, I've, you know, I've been in this job and I've heard about this everywhere. They said, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> well, it did. Last year it came. And we are spending a fortune fighting fires, mm -hmm. but we're spending nothing to try to mitigate the, the, the likelihood of there being a fire. And we're spending very little to protect the watersheds that are so vital to our farmers and ranchers in Colorado and across the Rocky Mountain West. So I wrote a bill called the Outdoor Restoration Act I said, look, we spent over three or four years, we spent $50 billion fighting these fires. Let's put $60 billion in to, to, to do the mitigation and the watershed protection. It's going to give our farmers and ranchers some peace of mind, at least, that we're trying to do something on the front end. And uh, the administration has included it in, in this, their infrastructure proposal. Good. Not to the same extent, not to the same size, but there will be, I think, billions of dollars available to do this work. My job, Bill, would have created 2 million jobs in rural, uh, in the rural West, uh, high-paying jobs in communities that need those jobs. And this, is, this will also help do that, too. So that's in there. Yeah. And the, if I could mention one other thing. Of course. The broadband bill that you guys, we've talked about before, which would allow local governments, counties, and municipalities um, to, to build out broadband instead of just subsidizing the biggest telecom companies, which is what we've done historically, that language, which is my bridge act, right. that's also in this, uh, in this infrastructure proposal from the Biden people, as is my rural infrastructure bill. For years, I've worked on the idea of how to streamline the federal government infrastructure grant program so that they can become more accessible to rural places that don't have a ton of people to write grants, you know, right. or who might want to come together collaboratively and work in a regional way. That stuff's in here too. I, we really appreciate that, especially yeah. this week, because we had applied for an EDA grant that was a regional development um, grant. And part of that was to, to hire grant writers and to do exactly what you're just yeah. talking about, because it is absolutely a problem. Um, we didn't get that grant. I heard um, of that. Yeah, yeah, CSU Boulder got the grant. And it or was CU a, Boulder. or CU Boulder, yeah. yeah. CU Boulder got the grant, um, and we were really surprised because it was a regional economic development grant, and nobody um, nationwide. There were forty-four grants given, um, and some more than thirty of those grants were given to universities um, or colleges. Um, very few were given. I think a couple to economic development groups, but it it was interesting to me that bless you. <laughs> Excuse me. It was interesting to me that that is. Um, it was an EDA grant and it was a regional economic development RFP and CU Boulder got it for Colorado. So I, it, it'd be interesting to see, cause you know, it, and you've been in it, you've described it, how that could be better applied. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see. I mean, you know, if I don't know whether it's going to be interesting to see whether we can pass this infrastructure mm -hmm. bill, there's right. a lot, a lot that has to get done between yeah. now and then, but um the, you know, I think there's a feeling in rural America that Washington has just abandoned rural America. And the, you know, the, the Biden administration has, has a lot to prove uh, in terms of um, trying to unify the country. Yeah. And I think they've got a very strong incentive and I hope they'll follow up on it to, to try to connect with rural America by putting in the kind of initiatives that I, 
talk about. And that's why I'm so involved in that stuff. I mean, I don't want to accept that this polarization is a permanent fact of our democracy because yeah. our democracy won't survive. Yeah. yeah. And and there are a lot of farmers and ranchers that are downstream from from that uh, from those watersheds that might never vote for me for whatever reason. I totally understand that. I get that. But if I can do something useful for them, maybe in a small way, it'll help bring us back together. Well, um, I think we're being signaled that we've got to let you go. So again, being the good congressional, former congressional. Staff, I know, yeah. Brian, you're always the best. <laughs> you're the best. Um, well, Sarah, thank you. Thank and Brian, you thank so you. Much. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll give me the chance to come back. Oh, anytime you We would you love want. it. Um, yeah. And follow up. We some of the stuff that we talked about last time you were with us was great. here too. We and, really appreciate it. And your staff has always been great. Thank you. Yeah, they're, they're the wonderful. best. Well, as you they're know, wonderful. I mean, the Senator is not the important person. The staff is the important. Yeah. So thank you. Appreciate when, that. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the state legislation that uh, is being introduced right now or has been introduced and where action 22 board of directors is on it. And some of the concerns that we have there uh, when we come right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders. Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. This is Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. To reach the show today, call in to 1-866- 
1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You may also reach out via email to sarah.blackhurst at action22.org. Now, back to Making Action Happen. Hi, welcome back to Making Action Happen. I'm sitting here with Brian, and we just finished up uh, with Senator Bennett. Um, I just, it's so great to have him here. I think last summer, we were really um, blessed for him to to increase his outreach to us. Um, we went, he sat down um, early in early on maybe April or May of last year and asked us to have our Action 22 members um, just do a roundtable discussion so he could get straight from their mouths, not filtered by anybody in D.C., what was happening here and what were some of the concerns. Then he followed up with uh, a couple of trips here. We went along on those. Um, he's just been great. Yeah, and it's it's really good. Like I've said before, post-election chaos where – um, the incoming members and senators that are new, you know, it takes a while for them to set up shop, get their operation going. To, so to have him in the area and engaged is awesome. And not a lot of places have that. You know, I've been to states where they don't see their senators, they don't see their congressmen. And for us to even have them on the show twice in a few months, I mean, that, that's a big deal. And, and I really appreciate him coming in and talking to us. Well, and his staff have worked so hard and really stepped up on casework and all of the things that go in that have to be covered during a transition. So yep. um, new senator, new representatives, um, all those, um, the needs of, of constituents don't go away um, yep. just because there's a transition going on and they have been excellent. His office has been excellent in um, stepping up and making sure that everybody was taken care of during that, during that six months or so yep. um, that that was going on. So um, there's a couple of pieces of legislation on the state side that we, that we want to talk about today. Um, the first one is it just was introduced. Um, it's Senate bill 200 and it is the reduce greenhouse gases and increase environmental justice. Um, this bill is, um, just in spite of the name, it is, um, a really, destructive bill. And here's why. Well, let me go back and say, we put this out to the Action 22 board yesterday to vote. um, And I haven't seen them passionately and in unison um, oppose a bill like this. Usually they have something, you know, they try to have something positive to say, but our board adamantly opposes this bill. Yeah. And just to put this out there too, whenever we see legislation um, as an organization, Action 22, because we're nonpartisan, um, adamantly nonpartisan. Uh, this goes to the the board, the members, whoever, and we get their input on whether or not to support or oppose um, legislation. So yesterday, you sent this out to the board, correct? Yep. And within ten minutes, <laughs> pretty much. Yes. The, the response was there. Well, the response was there, and it was beautifully articulated. I wanted to tell you. Um, one of our board uh, members, Ashley Valdez, wrote um, what the pro- her problem was with it, um, and we had a lot of them weigh in on and what they thought. and And we already had this process in place before COVID, where because our board is, uh, we have we can have up to three board members per county per each of the twenty two counties. And then we have um, seven out of area board members, and so those. Uh, <sighs> 
there's no way to get everybody together all the time to have these discussions. And so we've already had that online. Um, but this is this is what she said. The state of Colorado is well on its way to exceeding its climate goals. With SB 21200, the legislature passed the climate package in 2019, and that was SB 19236. That created a pathway to ensure equity for low-income energy consumers and provide protections for workers and communities. This proposed bill would unwind all of the good work that was already accomplished. And I didn't think anybody explained it better than that. But what this bill does, in essence, all of the goals that were set, there was and they, we've been working on this for a while. The state of Colorado has been working on this for a while. And everybody agrees that we want to be leaders in reducing emissions and doing um, climate and energy policy in a really productive and impactful way. Everybody in Colorado loves the environment and we love what's going on here. But what's happened with this particular bill is they took all of the really hard work, all the huge concessions that energy uh, companies had made in trying to reduce emissions. These goals that they set were already more aggressive than I thought was attainable or that anybody else. And then they went back in in 19, they looked at that and then they said, what, what technology has been added and what can we do and how can we improve it? And they did that. Here's the frustrating part, I think, is that they did all that. And now in 21, they're, the proponents of this bill and everybody who works with them said, oh, wait, that's not enough. You need to make it more without mm -hmm. any consideration of if that was feasible, um, if what the impact would be on consumers, what the impact would be on communities. We're talking millions and millions of tax dollars for the folks here in Pueblo. We're talking they want us they wanted to change the. Originally, they were going to close down Comanche 3 in what? Like, it, it was, was like 2070. It was 2070. No, I think that's right. I think yeah. it was 2070. And then in 19, they said, we can do better. And we're going to do better. And we're going to close it down in 2040, which is huge. And they got a whole lot of pushback. And everybody in the community sort of freaked out. But they said, no, we can do this. And 2040 will give us plenty of time. This bill says, nope, you need to do it in 2030, if not sooner. So whatever they've done, whatever we've done as communities and businesses uh, to try to meet those goals, they're basically saying it doesn't matter. Whatever you do, it's not going to be good enough. And we don't care what carnage is laid in the process of us trying to push something that's completely unattainable. Yeah, it reminds me of... Um... <laughs> Back in, you know, basic training where it's like, all right, you're going to run five miles and it's at the beginning and then it kills you and you're like, okay, that's done. They're like, oh, you can run five miles. We're going to make you run five more. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's absolutely ridiculous. We have uh, one of our, one of our board members, um, our new board members, Garrison Ortiz, who is a county commissioner for Pueblo County. Um, is particularly frustrated with this and he's been watching this very closely. Well, it impacts Pueblo financially. Um, I, it severely impacts Pueblo financially. So, and it's one of those things, and we've seen this over and over again. So all the planning that's done is, it's not for tomorrow. It's for three, five, 10 years out. And so then when they do that and they, you get committed, whether it's a, a, a business 
or a community or a county, um, they have all of these obligations and they go out and they have it all set up. And now you're going to change the rules on them and completely devastate any work. And it's going to unwind. There's, there's no way to meet those goals. Um, There's no way to do that. Um, And just because everybody stepped up um, to do that, it feels punitive. Like we stepped up to do this. We yeah. said, we're going to do this. We got, we're very collaborative and all of that, but we're going to punish you for actually trying to do what we've asked you to do by, um, and this legislation is, is punitive and we've, we're seeing a lot of punitive legislation right now. Yeah. It's, Give an inch, take a mile. Yeah. Um, it's super frustrating. So um, if it's not clear right now, um, I, if it, the last five minutes of me kind of going off on this. Um, Action 22 is adamantly, adamantly opposed. There's nothing in the bill so far that we see that's salvageable. um, And there's nothing um, as it is right now, we cannot in any way, shape or form support this, but we have to actually adamantly oppose um, that bill, the reduce greenhouse gases and increase environmental justice. And even that phrasing environmental justice fills it's a slap in the face, especially knowing all the work that's gone in to try to do that and meet the goals and pivot and um, everything that they've, that they've had to do. Which moves us along to the next bill. <laughs> Which is not dissimilar um, in our frustration with that. So the Ag Workers' Rights Bill. So you and I were in the San Luis Valley last week. Yes, um, I had never been out to Bob Mativi's place. Yeah, I've been there a few times. So Bob Mativi is a high-tech potato producer. And when I say a high-tech potato producer, I get a weird look. <laughs> um, but this was really cool. I was so excited. I'm sort of, um, I'm a little bit of an ag tech nerd. I am super excited to see, and the ag community never toots their own horn, but I was really excited to see when they've really brought the tech up to date in oh, producing yeah. our food. It's yeah, super and they, cool. And to be fair, they all do. Um, ag is a lot of people think that, you know, running a farm, raising cattle, it's just throwing some seeds in the ground and driving over it with a tractor. But I, I think I've said it before on this show, the first time that I ever experienced the internet was on a farm in Kansas in 1995. <laughs> um, I, I mean, our the, the high school I went to did not even have good internet at the time. Um, but my family out there, they had to have it. You know, it, it was, I remember going in my uncle's basement and he had um, the Doppler weather radar up and then he had the internet and then he was checking market prices and, you know, using maps and um, data for planting crops and, um, farmers, ag producers have always been at the forefront of technology and they will continue to do so, especially in this changing environment. Um, and you say a high tech potato farmer, but Bob Mativ's operation that we saw down there, you know, it's everything from the seeds cloning to raising, to planting, to a way to harvest it, get it out the door, get it to the stores, get it to wherever it needs to go. And it's impressive. It's so impressive. He has the potatoes. There's a little potato river that the potatoes go down so that they're gently moved from one place to another and they get cleaned. But that's not the high tech part. The Mm -hmm. high tech part is the way they sort and grade the potatoes. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's 
cameras. So the cameras take a 360 degree angle on each individual potato. Yep. And then it sends, it tells them what shoot to go on, what size it is, if there's any imperfections or anything that they need to go get rid of that potato or whatever. That was super cool. Robot arms that lift the potatoes um, and put them on the, um, put them on the pallet and nothing there that I saw indicated that the workers weren't treated anything but fantastically. Yes. Um, that and, struck me. And it does happen. Let's, let's be fair. Okay, um, we'll be it, fair. it does happen. People do take advantage of um, their workers and maybe mistreat them, but 99.9% .9 of the time you don't see that. And if an operation is treating their workers badly in this, in any way, they'll leave, you know, there's other places. It's like, well, this guy, I think Bob even brought up, he said like, we treat everybody great because if we don't, they're going to go over to the farm next to us. Well, and there's already, here's the thing that's interesting to me. There's already rules in place that mm. protect workers. Yes. They're federal rules. And even um, though some of those rules were opted out in Colorado, there's still a whole lot of rules that exist, but this bill, this worker um, ag worker bill is it's fascinating to me. I keep asking you, where is this coming from? Because there's a portion of the bill that says how long the handle can be on the hoe or the whatever tool that they're using that can't be too long or too short. Or I mean, there's specifics on that. There's specifics. And we know from going and interviewing and, and seeing some of these ag producers, and especially after I saw Bob Mativi's place, mm -hmm. those workers, they, um, they run the machinery, they yeah. run the cameras, they run, they're not, um, they're not out there backbreaking work. Um, the only so, thing that was really super physical was the guy maybe that was helping the potatoes get to the little potato river. Yeah. I, but there is some, there is some hard, like harder labor in that sure. going out and picking. And what, what's interesting about this, the, I forget the language, but it's like the band short handled hose. Um, you know, this, this impacts, I think the smaller farms, like the organic, where you actually do have people out there picking by hand. We're talking, you know, a, a few acres, um, somebody that can't afford or an operation that can't afford all the automation, can't afford the equipment. Um, you know, this would essentially say that you're going to have to go out there and dig potatoes, carrots, whatever out with your hand. Yeah. Um, that I didn't understand. Yeah. Um, I didn't understand how there's sort of, um, I don't understand where that one comes from. And, and to be fair, to be perfectly fair, um, the, the sponsor of the bill, um, Daniels, mm -hmm. I haven't had, I haven't stopped and had a conversation with her. I haven't asked her, yeah. you know, and that's, and that's to be perfectly fair. Uh, I've just really gone out. Cause this was, I, th I felt like this was very left field knowing that first of all, um, ag workers, they're looking for ag workers all the time. Ag workers already, quite a few ag workers already make um, Colorado minimum wage or above Colorado minimum wage. Which is higher than federal minimum Which wage. is higher than federal minimum wage. High, federal minimum wage is like seven something and Colorado minimum wage is like 12 something. Yeah. And so they're already doing better here. Um, and they're free to leave. There's nothing, there's no contracts. There's nothing like that. They 
ag workers can go from place to place. So I really have had a hard time understanding this. Well, this, this is one where um, I'm not an expert on ag by any means. I know a little bit about it, but you default to the Action 22 members and the ag producers in Action 22. And I, I've honestly, you know, being in the Valley, talking to our members, um, even non-members, I don't, I haven't spoken with anybody that's come out in support of this bill or even parts of the bill. Right. You know, we, the, the thing we ask when we're doing this is like, you know, okay, so the, this bill's going to probably pass. It's going to go through. Um, what, what would you like to see changed in it? What would you like added to it? What don't you like about it? What's a good thing you can find in it? And we've asked that question, like, can you identify any good parts of this bill that would affect you in a positive way? And I mean, and, I haven't really heard anything. And most of the time on the state level, there's something. There's yeah. something and they say, um, so you'll hear people say, I can't support the bill in its current form, meaning there's going to be some things that they want to change about it. And so the stakeholders come in and they say, if you can change this, then we can live with it. Or if you can change this, we can live with it. That absolutely has not happened on this bill. And again, I don't understand why. I went and had a uh, drove around uh, with one of our Action 22 members who is um, Senator Cleve Simpson, and he's a new senator. Um, there's, I, I'm a big fan of his. But one of the things that I really like about him is he hasn't gone in there acting like he knows everything already. He's gone in there really to try to learn and understand the things that he doesn't know. He's been, his family's been a producer down there in the San Luis Valley for like five generations now. And I went and met his dad and, and he drove us around and, and they have five generations all living within the same little area. Um, And, and so he went and I, I know he's tried to reach out to really understand, is there something he's missing? I think mm-hmm. that was the question he had. And he still can't answer the question, what am I missing that we don't already have? And, and there's a couple things that he's like, we could maybe improve, but he's looking to improve. And that's just the sort of legislator he is. He wants to improve if there's really a problem, he wants to, to fix it. And again, we don't understand where this is yeah. coming from. And, and my fear with this too is with ag being the second largest economic driver in Colorado, um, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you don't want ag to go away. But what I, I see this, and again, this could be like my conspiracy tinfoil hat is you have ag producers, farmers, ranchers that are barely making it. They're making it and they will make it as is. Um, but then you have something that comes in that impacts them, just like fees on a small business, especially now we're seeing some proposed fees and some rule changes that will impact small businesses. Um, I don't think anybody in Colorado wants ag to go away, but what you're going to see is some of these operations, these producers, they'll, they'll say, we can't do it anymore. And ironically, then you'll see the large, you know, multi-million, huge national farming companies, ag companies come in and just take over and they'll be like, okay, well, we can afford to do this. We can do this. So let's just buy everybody out. And my fear is that you'll have these generations of farmers, you know, in Colorado that it's like, it's too tough. I give up. I'm just going to sell everything. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing. I don't think it is. I absolutely don't think it is. I, um, I have a deep, deep affection for the ag community uh, and that's no secret, but I think um, 
one of the things about this bill that also bothers me is that it's very much t- attacking or it's very much going after ag. I mean, that's the whole thing. The bill itself says ag. So why are they, and it's ag workers. So knowing that they have all of these regulations on them already, why is this would put them, it would not, it would not be a level, a level playing field. It would put them at a huge disadvantage um, that I don't know. And I can't read my, I don't think I don't, I'm going to give um, uh, Daniels the benefit of the doubt that that's not her intent no. is to put it. I don't think that that's the intent at all, but those unintended consequences come yes. into play. And there might be another side of the story to play devil's advocate. Maybe there's something that um, was seen, or maybe there is an issue that we're not aware of, but I mean, I haven't seen anything, but maybe it's out there. And I, I think that the proponents of this legislation need to do a better job about explaining where they're coming from and why. Um, but, you know, another thing I've heard is that there hasn't been much engagement to the, with the people that are opposed to this, with the people that are pushing it. And you need to have that engagement. This We've heard it on the show before that you know, Republicans and Democrats need to talk to each other. And this is an example where one side's not listening to the other. And I, and it works both ways. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's nobody's the, innocent. In yeah. That, yeah. And for I'm, not, sure. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but this is an issue when you're talking about one of the largest economic drivers in a state post COVID that everybody needs like, we need money. We need our economy to rebound. And Ag has been actually doing well during COVID. Um, the ag has kept Colorado going. Ag is feeding our country. And it just seems there hasn't been that engagement to the ag community as far, at least in our region. And I could be wrong. And please, if I'm wrong, yeah, let us, us know. Email we- us at show of at action22.org. Um, we want to hear from you because we're not hearing from that side of it. And we need to hear from that side. For sure. I think the thing, one of the things that was a big takeaway for me uh, with meeting with Bob Mativi is he took us in to where they, he kept talking about cutting, but what they do is they have a plant and they cut it and they cut it and they cut it and they'll get thousands of plants from the one plant that starts, but it takes three years from the time they start with that sprout. Which which actually goes into the next point you have um, as Action 22 is aware. I think we sent an email out and we spoke about it and we're going to speak about this in depth next week on our show, hopefully. Um, you know, you have legislation through rule, rulemaking. And when you have an operation that has to plan financially for three years out and you have either legislation passing in the state that may increase fine or fees, taxes and fines, um, or as what we're seeing rulemaking. So changes to the rules of the state. So it doesn't even go through the legislative process right. that is going to possibly impact um, operations financially. You know, they're planning from three years ago, again, post or pre COVID. And so what they planned for in 2021, 2022 was way back in 2018. And then if all of a sudden we're dumped with all these new fees, taxes, what have you, um, that's going to hurt them. I, I, plain and simple, that's going to cut into their their revenue, um, and and they they understand that, and they've always dealt with it. It's you know something that's just there. But again, next week's show, we're going to talk about 
legislation through rulemaking. And when we're talking about everybody is giving lip service to economic recovery, but legislation or not legislation governing through rulemaking mm-hmm. um, is exactly in contradiction to that philosophy that we're all trying to get everybody back on their feet um, and to do this in a productive way, number one. But number two, the other thing that really bothers me about some of these things is um, can we not make any rule changes or anything that any changes that we're trying to make, can we make them incentivized instead of punitive? Yes. We're absolutely capable of that, but that's not the approach that some of these, like these two bills are not taking that approach. There's no incentive. There's no support. There's no, um, here, if we do it this way, um, we're going to reward you. It is, it's a punitive way of doing things. And it, it bugs me. It's a uh, negative reinforcement. So positive reinforcement versus negative reinforcement, negative reinforcement really doesn't work. Um, not in humans, not in animals. You know, you can't train your dog by beating it. Um, you can't mold a human by punishing him or her. Um, oh, going back to, I guess, you know, the military has a different idea about that, but, <laughs> but in everything else that that's not how it works. It's, um, you know, the honey vinegar. Yeah. Thing. What's going to be the most, it's going to work maybe the first or second time, but in long-term sustainability, punitive um, reinforcement never works to change minds or hearts. It never works to yeah. get any kind of long-term effective change to happen. So um, those are the other two. There's several other things going on. We've had lots of discussions in the last couple of weeks. It's been super busy. Um, in the last few minutes, what what else has been, um, as, as I have a couple of things as members are reaching out, but what, what's been, uh, your conversations have been like? Um, you know, I've just been, right now I'm going to solely concentrate on recruiting people for Action 22. We need members. We need your help right now. Um, our voice is our members and we need more members to have a louder voice. Um, luckily, we do have a good relationship with our legislators, federal and local. Um, we do have that line to the governor and he engages us. But the more people we have in our voice, the louder we are. And maybe that can help educate some of the people that aren't rural Coloradoans when they're making these decisions, changing these rules, you know, open up their eyes to how it impacts us. And I've said it before on the show, like we're, we need to be together in this because the world's crazy right now. And, you know, we're still in a pandemic and not not to disparage our, our politicians and our legislators, but this is an, a time where they can get things done that traditionally they can't get done. And we need to make sure the changes that they're making and implementing that impact our area, they're heard. And so I, I think that that's it. We need your help. Yeah. So um, I'm going to give you a quick example of that. We had uh, yesterday, I had a great conversation with um, CDOT. Um, and in particular, Sarah Hughes um, was on that call and a couple other people um, were on that call to talk about the governor's uh, transportation funding proposal. And I had a lot of questions and you know me well, I like to ask questions until I get the answer, until I understand something. And, and they said on the phone, um, we're going to do a follow-up transportation um, 
sort of a mini summit like we did with energy. We're going to do that on the 23rd of this month because there's a whole lot of questions before that language is introduced um, as to what's going on. Uh, because there's a lot of questions surrounding. So there, we've got the state stimulus that they worked on, that the, our legislators worked really hard on. Um, there is the transportation proposal. And then we have um, all of the stimulus money coming in. Um, and at one point I kept asking if we're going to do this, if transportation and, and if we're going to try to fund it, you know, internally, but we're getting stimulus dollars in, uh, why do we need to do that if we're getting all the stimulus money? And I think the thing that we need to remember is, um, like you just said, right now is really the time to put things together in a productive way. The stimulus the federal stimulus is one-time dollars. It's not for programs. That's not the intent of it. But if we can do that and catch up and then put these uh, projects, the things that are most important and highest priority um, to us in place so that it's sustainable after the stimulus helps us catch up. So if we think about it in that way, I, I think we can be more productive in um, sort of analyzing it and being critical um, but being productively critical of some of those things. And, and um, it was a great conversation, but I really hadn't thought about it in that way before, how, this, how the stimulus dollars from the federal stimulus dollars can be used to catch up on things. And then Colorado, it's back on Colorado to keep things, those things sustainable. So um, that, was, that was productive. So we'll keep everybody posted on um, how they can uh, get in on that conversation. We have a lot of uh, county commissioners that we have visited with and a lot of them are, you know, we have a lot of new um, county commissioners and they're all wondering how all that is gonna work. The other thing that we um, are, are beginning to hammer out the Building Back Better Colorado um, is a project out of the governor's office and they're doing a series of, learn of listening sessions. And those listening sessions are to really understand uh, what specific priorities are. We all know what the big five are, education, fire mitigation, um, transportation, those are all the big five, but specifically what they're going to do um, so that when those stimulus dollars come in, they can figure out their process for getting those to the counties and what needs to happen first and what needs to happen second. So sort of prioritizing that um, as soon as they have made those decisions. But I think um, what I'm hearing and, and we've had this confirmed in a couple of places is that um, a lot of that's going to go through DOLA. Um, and, and DOLA, of course, is unique to Colorado. Uh, other states don't have that, um, but uh, DOLA is, will be the one that are sort of doing that. Um, as, as you were explaining earlier, it's sort of the how to put the money where, um, and then OED, it's going to play a big role in that as well. So there's going to be some interesting things coming up, um, and it will be, um, it'll be great. So um, that's all we have for today. Hey, Chad Forthman, I know you're listening. Um, so remember that time you ran a ballot initiative and you, everybody uh, was kind of mad at you about it. How about you run now one um, that will really make the people who are introducing pause uh, really, really mad. So join us next week when I ask a lot of overcomplicated questions. And uh, Brian McCain explains to us how growing up in Pueblo, Colorado, gave him the unique skills that he needed to run security on a sweat lodge at a nunnery in an undisclosed location of Ukraine. We'll be back next week to talk about those and all the other crazy things happening in Colorado. See you then. 
Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.